Welcome to Dig Deep on KAXE, KBXE. It's a conversation between Aaron Brown and Chuck Marone. I'm Heidi Holton. I'm news director at KAXE, KBXE, and I'm producer of Dig Deep. Each time that I gather with Chuck and Aaron, whether it's in the studio or remotely, like the conversation you're, you will hear ahead, I listen deeply. I learn from these thinkers from their different perspectives of conservative and liberal and how they tell the story of now in the context of the past. I may not always agree with Chuck and Aaron, but I think and I listen and I find a broader context for this moment in time. Dig Deep features Strong Town CEO and founder Chuck Marone and Minnesota Brown and Great Northern Radio Show founder Aaron Brown. Let's listen together. Chuck Marone begins this conversation about the place we're in with the pandemic and the killing of George Floyd and the protests and race riots. The tumult and the disconnect that we've talked about for a long time on this program, inequality, how this manifests in our communities, in our neighborhoods, the tensions around the inability of our systems of governance to actually work through these issues in ways that not only are productive, but but satisfying at the end of the day. We've been living through a great period of dysfunction, and that extends beyond just the last three years of, of the Trump presidency would have been particularly tumultuous, but really back for a couple of decades now, you know, ever since really the end of the Cold War, the things that kind of united us in common purpose, I mean, around a common enemy, uh, those moments have been few and far between. And we remember the first Gulf War, I do, the second, the 9-11 attacks and the subsequent Gulf War after that as times of rare unity. And so now, you know, you throw this pandemic into it, this very clumsy response I mean, you, you can be partisan as you want, but I think what is very clear is that our systems of responding to this have been clumsy in the same way that our response to Hurricane Katrina was clumsy in a way that, you know, I think we're all kind of embarrassed with and look at as like just a sign of futility. You add to that the fact that millions of people have been instantly thrown out of work, have been economically dislocated uh, with those in employment feeling very unstable and insecure while simultaneously the stock market goes up and up and up seemingly against all you know gravity that would naturally pull it down and the whole narrative of the haves and the have-nots is just this tinder laid on top of this heap of like raw flash stuff and the whole george floyd thing as horrific as it was in the moment, I think maybe remembered much in the way, hopefully not to this extent, but but maybe in the way that Gabriella Princip assassinating an archduke, you know, set off something much greater that was really just the result of all this accumulated tinder that needed to be worked out. Uh, the George Floyd situation may wind up being that and kind of feels like that kind of a moment. There's the old quote, you know, there are Decades where nothing happens and there are weeks when decades happen and we are living through one of those times when decades are are happening. Each day last week felt like a week of news or more. I, I very much agree with everything Chuck just said. We've been talking about these themes. Uh, these themes are at the heart of American politics, rarely discussed 
in the way we talk about them, but but you know when you talk about the immigration and economic uh, impact of immigration and cultural impact of immigration and how that's been a part of this, that's in there. You talk about the top two percent has the wealth, the bottom ninety eight percent does the work and gets relatively less of the of the pie. That's all part of this discussion that we've been having and and how people feel about it, whether they're a conservative rural person or a liberal. Uh, a metropolitan person, um, whether you're a person of color or whether you are a, a member of a of a privileged class, you still hear these themes seen completely differently from whatever vantage point that you're in come out. It's just all bubbled over. The historical parallel that I thought of, and it, I'm a little biased because I had just done some research, and this is in the project I'm working on, because the, the father of the guy I'm researching arrived in New York City in the midst of the, the draft riots of uh, the 1860s during the Civil War when the city of New York was put under martial law. Like the current uprisings and protests across this country, those riots would have been 1863. Those were racially motivated riots as well. It was different than these ones in that it was Irish Americans mostly, which was a huge part of the population of New York at that time, uh, fed up with the unfairness of the system that they've entered as, as new citizens or as new people, as immigrant workers, lashed out both at the people who were they felt were oppressing them, in this case, the government, the city, all institutions that that stood above them. But they also lashed out against African-Americans who lived in the city, who they believed were taking their jobs, were going to lower wages, and all of the other racial tropes of the time. It skipped out of the, the bounds of how it began, which was as a draft riot. They were rioting against the mandatory conscription, the, the draft that would send men who couldn't afford to pay their way out uh, into the Union Army to go die in the South because, I mean, half the people who went died. They, they rioted against the draft, but they also invaded black neighborhoods and burned them down and, and, and killed and lynched and destroyed people's homes. They pulled people from their homes for no reason. Talk about what happens on the street. They were going into the houses, into the buildings. I remember cheering Tiananmen Square and the Tiananmen Square uprisings. I think it was late 80s, maybe it was 91. It was somewhere near the end of my high school period of time. And and I remember seeing like Time Magazine would come out once a week and I would always purchase Time Magazine because I wanted, I still have the ones from Tiananmen Square. They were so impactful because here were people by our narrative in the West were deeply oppressed were not allowed to express themselves, were part of an authoritarian regime who were standing up and in an idealistic way were using the Statue of Liberty and other visualizations of America as their call for freedom. And I remember being very inspired by that. Like, look, not only do they seek something that we take for granted, but they're using us as their symbolism for good, for what they're aspiring to. And I remember feeling very... um both humbled and inspired by that. I remember being appalled then when the troops were brought in from the countryside, literally like they couldn't get the troops from the major cities to open up fire on people within the city. They were like brethren. They like, you know, wouldn't do it basically. 
And there were even reports of some of the troops joining in with the protesters in Tiananmen Square. And so what the leaders did at the time uh, was they brought in fresh troops from the countryside, people who were not acclimated to, you know, the urban life or what have you, people who were more anonymous uh, to each other. And that was how they did the crackdown. And I remember just like the gut punch of that, like, you know, we forsaken these people, we've given them up, we've lost them. In that context, it's really been circling around in my brain how this much must look like from foreign perspectives. The Chinese have been very vocal in taunting us over the last couple of weeks. And, and I think in kind of a karmic way, uh, you know, we did the same thing with them. Our propaganda, you know, beamed into them after Tiananmen Square. Their propaganda is, is beaming into us. And, you know, I, I think hopefully maybe the difference is that we actually, in, instead of, and I'm assuming they ignored it, but instead of like moving on from it, I think the propaganda strikes home because it's very telling. The scenes from America today look a lot like the scenes from China in the late 80s, early 90s, at a period of time when, you know, they were seeking freedoms, uh, freedoms that, you know, now seem kind of elusive for us as well. We, we often think of the Stasi, the CCP in, in China as being police states, as states where, you know, the government's going to show up in riot gear and they're going to read your emails and they're going to monitor your phone calls. And, you know, oh, we don't do that here in America. We're in 2020 and we do all that as like routine matters of business. I find it very interesting to watch protests that are going on. I saw a scene from Amsterdam yesterday. And I'm like, why, what are people in Amsterdam doing protesting at, at this moment? Like, what is it about George Floyd and the militarization of the police and the kind of institutional racism in our systems of justice? What is it that would call out someone from Amsterdam into the streets? And I may be wrong about this, but I'm left with this profound feeling of sorrow that they believed at some point in the past in the idealism of America as well. They looked at us in a sense as a beacon of not perfection, uh, but of people with morals and virtues that were worthy of standing up for. And, you know, those things, if not gone, seem to be certainly under deep assault and deep questioning. And, and I, you know, I, I'm sure that they stand in solidarity with oppressed peoples. And I'm sure there's a, a lot of, you know, just weird there with you kind of going on. But But I do think that at least some of it has to be the fact that, you know, the things that we hold ourselves to or aspire to, we seem to not just systematically be underperforming them, but but in some ways like leaning into that, like becoming the worst of what we have pointed to in others. You know, we seem to be doing this. And it, it you know, it goes back to, I, I think of things like, you know, the torture in the second Gulf War, things that we said like we would never do after 9-11. We would never lock up Japanese in internment camps the way we did after World War II. Yet on 9-12, we were locking up anyone who was six degrees of separation from a Muslim in camps. And we had this debate in this country. And the thing is, it was largely unresolved. I think you're seeing the cumulative effect of that kind of uh, diminishment of American. And I don't think it's too strong. I was going to say prestige, but I, I think that it's not prestige. It's moral leadership is what it is. 
uh, I think you're seeing the diminishment of our moral leadership. Um, it's hard to say that America is a good country today. And I say that as someone who's served in the military and, and flies a flag in front of my house and wants to believe in these things. But whether it's the way our police acts, whether it's the way that the top leader in our executive office tweets and purports himself, whether it is all the discussion from the top to the bottom, just the dysfunction of it. I asked the question the other day of a good friend of mine, point to me an institution that you believe in. An institution that if you, in your, in your heart, held a belief and this institution came out and said, you should be thinking this and it's the opposite of what you believe, that your reaction would be, well, let me ponder that. You know, that they, they make a good point. Like, I have enough faith in them as an institution to question my own beliefs. Name that institution. I'm Catholic. I don't even know as a Catholic church is that institution today. I think we have a hard time. We lament the loss of a Walter Cronkite, but Walter Cronkite was nothing more than an, a trusted institution. Where is that today? And I don't know that it exists. And that's a, that's a scary thing for a, a country as divided as we are. That's Chuck Marone. He is in conversation with Aaron Brown for Dig Deep on member-supported KAXE, KBXE. This is a conversation about this time of pandemic, this time of protest over the murder of George Floyd on the streets of Minneapolis and racism and, and police brutality. I asked Chuck and Aaron about Minnesota at the epicenter of this worldwide protest of racism. Can I take that first? Because I want Aaron to be able to go on on this. I think he has more to say on this than I do. I think that the juxtaposition of not only Minnesota nice, which is something we take pride in, and I immediately felt shame over when the George Floyd situation happened, but you've got one of the most consistently liberal states, one of the most consistently liberal cities, dominated for decades by uh, you know, progressive politicians and progressive politics, a police force that has done all the, you know, quote unquote, right things in terms of liberal reform, putting people of color in senior positions, empowering them to make change. Yet here we are. And, and, and I think we have to ask the question, are the things that we've kind of been telling ourselves, not only about ourselves, but about what our project was for making things better, are we just fooling ourselves with that? Is that just a lie wrapped in a lie? That is an easy segue for my friend Aaron, but... Um... <laughs> yeah, that's kind of close to what I was going to start talking about. I have talked about and joked about Minnesota Nice before, and it always, it's interesting hearing different reactions. If you say that Minnesota Nice is actually just a veneer placed over a very suspicious people who are uh, deeply concerned about outsiders coming in and who are a little higher on the horse than your average person, ruled moralistically by their uh, their conscience in, in such a way, and that Minnesota Nice was a big, friendly Fargo, the movie Fargo Smile, on all that. A lot of Minnesotans, just as they reacted to the movie Fargo, will react very hostily to that, with a lot of hostility towards that that viewpoint. I've had that experience, even just joking about it. Some people will say, oh, the people, I grew up in Minnesota, and the people in my hometown would have given me the shirt off their backs, and they were so kind and, and, and friendly and, and, and genuine. They, they loved me and, and all this. And I think, and I, this is what I was kind of thinking when Chuck was talking in the earlier point, 
was, I've said, I think on this podcast that we live in this age of marketing where the story we tell ourselves is the, is the truth and that the truth is something that is either convenient or inconvenient to our story. But we generally don't concern ourselves with the truth. We generally concern ourselves with the story, the, the product. The product is our job. The product is the way we live our life. It's the things we buy and the things that we think are necessary to live. That's why people in a dilapidated small town in northern Minnesota will say, I just can't wait until maybe a target comes here or something and makes this place better. It's this kind of strange story of marketing that makes people think this way. Well, Minnesota Nice is marketing. It's a tag that you can put on our, our actually rather strange passive-aggressive nature that we have. Going back to the, again, this is just speaking of the white story of Minnesota, which is, the, which is an immigrant story, a Scandinavian and German story, uh, mostly, though there are others. But the cultural Im import of those, of those cultures and the way those cultures reacted to the prairie, the woods, and the urban environment of early Minnesota created this, this sort of... Chuck describes it as progressive. Even when it was Republican, it was often very progressive. When the Republican had the progressive movement, um, you know, the Republican Party began in a very different ideological place than than it, it's at now, just as the Democratic Party did. In many ways, they were reversed back in the early days of statehood. But so, so we, we live in this state of this veneer that, that white, the white part of our state really got to experience. Now, Native Americans didn't get to experience Minnesota nice because very early on in the arrival of all these settlers, their land was taken and they were relegated to reservations and they had a very different experience with the state than than white Minnesotans had. Ditto during and after the Civil War when when black Americans came to St. Paul up the river from the south and tried to establish new lives outside of slavery, their experience was also that of the outsider, the permanent outsider. I think every immigrant story starts with these immigrants were discriminated against or looked down upon when they started. But how many generations does it take for you to be considered no longer an immigrant, but you're you're an American now. And the experience historically that black Minnesotans had, I mean, they, they, how many generations has it been? I think if you go to Rondo in St. Paul, they would tell you, we're still counting. We don't know when, when we will be considered equal Americans in the eyes of the power structure in this state, even though it's progressive. You know, but I watched this happen on the Iron Range. I grew up in DFL politics. I'm, I'm, I'm painted, Chuck and I, I don't know where we are today ideologically. Uh, we're all over the map maybe. But I grew up in the DFL and I was, I'm described here as the liberal and I am. Grew up in Iron Range DFL circles. Uh, I remember knocking doors for Paul Wellstone. I remember Ann Winia uh, ran for Senate in 94 in the, in the Republican wave year and got beat. Um, by Rod Grams that year. I remember uh, the range voted for these very liberal people. And I thought that meant that my friends and neighbors, oh, they were liberal, they're inclusive, you know, they're... But in reality, people are concerned with the power structures around them and, and surviving and thriving within them. 
And even if you want to affiliate it with a liberal cause, racial equality, the Martin Luther King, the sanitized version of Martin Luther King's teachings, for instance, that passes for a liberal thought on the matter of race in this country, the actual reality that they shot Martin Luther King, that he had himself, by the end of his life, realized that there were such huge you know barriers to the the equality he had sought and that he was even becoming more radicalized if you want to use that word uh by the end of his life and that may have had something to do if you want to get into conspiracies with with why he died uh if you look at that if you look at the fact that it's very easy to say well we're all the same or what what i often hear in my community i don't see color as a phrase you often hear, that is a very dubious statement. And I know people might mean it when they say it, but I think that's almost worse than seeing color because I think there's a reality that, and I'm not going to say like, oh, I know what black people go through. This is what we, we were just talking before we started recording all of the performance-based things that white people can do during times like these to make themselves seem really well-connected. I'll say that I'm a white guy from the range and I grew up on a junkyard and that I have about half my family who I've heard say some really awful things about the subject of race and another half that didn't like that they said those things but are frankly just confused on the matter of race and I'd put myself in that category. I don't really know what it's like to not be a white guy. I know that I've probably gotten away with some things um, uh, with a with even a, a wry smile from a law enforcement officer uh, than um, that I know I wouldn't have gotten away with uh, if I were anything other than a white man. So that that's something on my mind. Uh, but I feel like we really overstate like, oh, I was a, I'm a Democrat or I'm a progressive, or maybe you're a conservative, but you are a Christian or you are, uh, an, you know, someone who's experienced the world and you understand that it's not right to have, to look down on other races or groups. But I, I just don't think we really understand. I think we're buying into the marketing that, hey, the sixties, a lot of progress, Martin Luther King, there's some beer commercials that show how people really are getting along great now and um it, and so you buy that as marketing or we elected barack obama who i support and supported but but that was i think kind of a you know look what we did we did that come on isn't that great um there's no problems anymore but i think it only showed that if you look at the from this from a historical standpoint like the way people will look at our time when we are old or dead, uh, people will look back and say, boy, America elected Barack Obama. But from that moment on, the, the, the racial problems that existed in the culture of the United States of America only seemed to get worse in a, in a way because he drew out the true feelings of a minority, perhaps. I don't know. We'll see. Um, of people who couldn't handle that level of cultural change, the acceptance of a 
of a black man as president, for instance, or changes in the acceptance of the, the norms in who are the leaders of this country and our companies and our organizations, our institutions. Looking at it historically, we will see that this is still America's original sin, the sin of slavery and the sin of trying to keep a form of slavery after the end of the Civil War. And Minnesota, I think, is a, is a flashpoint. We were the first, you know, the first to offer troops to fight the Civil War, uh, to put down the South and their treason. But we were not doing it to protect the interests of the slaves, of the people who were held in bondage. We were doing it for power. And that is the problem. People want to preserve the power structure when it benefits them. And that's where we are. That's Aaron Brown for Dig Deep on KEXE, KBXE. Part two is available now at our website, kexe.org, where member-supported radio in northern Minnesota.